Now in our service, we seek to hear from God as his word is read and preached and then speak to God in the context of corporate prayer. That's what we're going to give ourselves and our hearts to now. So let me pray and then we'll read God's word together. Our Father, we pray that you would now help us to hear and see and feel and believe and experience that you love us. We pray that whether that we're hearing that for the first time or the 10,000th time, we pray that that good news, would, which is essential to us, would be drilled down to our soul and that we would all sense it and feel it in such a way that it might produce in us more love for you as well. Come hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you were here with us last week, you know that we started a new series that we're simply calling More. We celebrated 10 years as a church together, and we're saying that in the next coming years, if we're going to be around for another decade, we want to spend the fall of 2019 in a significant way laying the foundation for the years to come. And so in this season, we're saying together as a church, God, if you seem fit and pleased to have us here, then we're not content and we're not done. We want more. More love for God, more love for his word, more love for people, more love for the city and the world. We want all of it and we want more. And so in this season, we're giving ourselves uniquely to both word and prayer. We're going to hear from God's word. And after we do, we're going to give time together to pray. So if you remember, I'm watching the clock. I'm promising you shorter sermons so that we might allot more time for us to pray as a church. As we do, it'll be clumsy, it'll be awkward, it'll be weird but we'll learn and grow as a church that prays together. That's what we're getting after. Today, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. There's one in the seat back in front of you. It's on page 1023. It'll be shown on the screens as well. 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as you hear that passage, if only there was one word that really summarized that passage and helped us see what the author was really getting after. One word that stood out, if you will. Now, of course, I'm kidding because there was one word that jumped out, that was highlighted on the screen for you and you heard over and over and over and over again, and that's the word love. By my count, 29 times in this short section of verses, the Apostle John, who is called the one that Jesus loved, proclaims love, talks about love. And in this passage, he wants to communicate something about the love of God. The burden of this passage is to talk about the love that we ought to have for one another. But it starts with the love of God, and that's what I want us to consider today. Now, here's what I want you to hear as background. Part of why the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve, one of the eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus, writes this letter called 1 John is because he wants the readers, whoever reads his book, to know if they're really legitimately Christian. Okay, So he literally writes this letter so that everybody who reads it goes, I look at this book and I can tell whether or not I'm an authentic Christian, whether I'm legitimate. You know how it's often said, just because you... Uh, stand in a garage doesn't make you a car. So in the same way, standing in a church doesn't make you a Christian. How do you know if you're real, if you've got legitimate faith, if you've got saving faith, if you have a real relationship with God? And so John writes this book so that the readers can know, do I have an authentic relationship? Am I a legit Christian? And so he gives a series of tests in the book by which you can examine yourself. And one of the tests is this. At the heart of an authentic Christian is a heart that loves God, okay? One of the tests of whether or not you're really a Christian, whether or not you really belong to God, is a heart of an authentic Christian has a heart that loves God. Notice there, it's not even just mental assent to a set of beliefs. Like you can check a box on a set of creeds and say, yeah, I believe that, I'll believe that. But real belief will produce in your heart a real, genuine all-encompassing love for God. Now, that's not new to John. That's not novel, original with him. He's just quoting and saying what the whole Bible has been saying. So, for example, people came to Jesus, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's required of man? What is necessary for human beings? Right? If you read the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible, there's like 600 different commands. So how do we keep all those do's and don'ts Lord Jesus, if there was one thing that could summarize it all, what would it be? And Jesus didn't need to think about it. He didn't take a long time. He knew right away what to answer. He said, here's the great and first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So what is required of man? What is necessary of man over and above everything? It's to love God. And how do you love him? With your everything with your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with every fiber of who you are, that's what it means to be a real, authentic, genuine believer. Someone who really belongs to Christ is someone, Jesus says, who's going to love God with everything they've got. 
or Jesus will explain it other ways. He'll illustrate it. So, for example, one time a rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what is required of me? What should I do to inherit eternal life? What's the one thing God wants from me? And do you remember what Jesus says? In this story, Jesus looks at this rich man and he says, here's what you need to do. Go and sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. A few weeks ago, we had someone preach on that passage. And if you remember, he said he wasn't telling this man that poverty is the way to heaven. He was rather counseling this man and identifying, putting his finger on this man's heart and seeing that which was so treasured by this man. And essentially saying to this man, until and unless every other treasure of your life pales in comparison to me, you can't be my disciple. And if you know that story, you know that this man who loved his wealth went away sad. Because when Jesus was pitted against another treasure in his life, Jesus lost. And he then proved that he wasn't an authentic, real, genuine, heartfelt disciple of Christ. Because Jesus is saying, until and unless you treasure me over and above every other treasure of your life, you can't be my disciple. Now when you hear that, I want you to hear something. He's not saying this to lay this impossible burden on you. Like, okay, now i got to rig my heart to somehow love Jesus more than all the other stuff that I naturally love. He's saying, if you really come to know me, you will treasure me more than anything else. Like, like $50 is, is, is important to me. But if you were going to give me lifetime season tickets to the Eagles for $50, I would gladly trade that without thinking about it for a second. Because it's a no-brainer. I treasure that so much more that I would part with $50 in a second. Jesus is saying... If you really come to me, my disciple, you come to treasure me in such a way that every other trinket in the world could be traded in a second for the sake of having Jesus. Or Jesus says it differently. He says it this way. He'll say, if you do not love me more than, and then he brings out this parade of people, more than father and mother and brother and sister and son and daughter, you're not worthy of being my disciple. Now you think of that. In another passage, he turns it up. He speaks hyperbolically, exaggerating so that you might really get it. He literally says, if you don't hate your father, mother, brother, sister, children, in comparison to me, you can't be my disciple. Now why would a Jesus whose spirit authored the chapter on love say that? He's trying to get across this point. If your love relationship with God does not trump every other love relationship that you have in such a way that those others feel like hate compared to how you love Jesus, you can't be my disciple. And you think of that again. He's not laying a burden that should weigh us down and go, okay, now i got to rig my heart to love Jesus more than husband and wife and children and sons and daughters. He's trying to say, do you see what I'm calling you to? Like, it's no burden for me to love my children most of the time, right? Think of that. But I am saying... It's no burden. If, if you called me to love my children over and above every other child in the universe, that would be no burden at all to me. It's the delight and natural inclination of my heart to love my son and my daughter over and above every other child in the universe. That's not a delight. I mean, that's not a burden. That's not a duty. That's the natural delight of my heart. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to really be my disciple... You will have come to see me in such a way that every other love relationship that you have pales in comparison to the love that you have for me. 
you come to value Jesus in such a way that you are able to say more than anyone and more than anything, I love Jesus. I mean, we could go, keep going, brothers and sisters. I could walk you through a dozen different texts that impress on us the necessity of loving God. It is required of all of God's people that they should love him and love him how? With everything they've got, with all their being. Treasure him how? Above every other treasure. Love him in such a way that every other love relationship pales in comparison to him. Okay, that's what's required. So the question then would be, how are you doing with that? And how am I doing with that? And Seven Mile Road, 10 years in, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with treasuring Jesus over and above every other treasure? And loving Jesus over and above every other love? Now for every sensitive conscience here, for everyone whose soul would be weighed down by that question and now begin to wonder, wait, what does that mean? And if there is a gap between how I ought to love God and how I do love God, what does that mean about whether I am a genuine, authentic, real Christian? For every heart that wonders that, that grows anxious about that, I want to offer you this encouragement. And that is that even sitting here, if you do sense that gap between how you ought to love Him and how you do, and there is at least in you a desire to love Him as you ought, then I want you to know, however weak it might be, there is a pulse in your soul. If your soul feels even now a desire that I do want to love him like that, and I do want to love him over and above every other love, I want you to hear that's a pulse. However weak and faint that pulse might be, there's a pulse of spiritual life in you. And the reason I say that is because of this. There has never been any devil anywhere who has heard a call to love God and felt contrition and felt remorse and felt conviction or concern. In fact, there's no one in the kingdom of darkness who is concerned over your loveless soul. All the kingdom of darkness delights when God is not loved. But it is those who are in light who desire to love God. And so that there is a desire, however faint it might be, in your soul to love God, shows you which kingdom you belong to. In fact, it should grieve you that if there is no concern, if there is no desire for you to love God, that should indicate to you which kingdom you belong to as well. If there is in your heart, even this day, even the faintest desire to love God more, it's because the Spirit of God is doing something over your soul. So then as a church, if we want to love Him more, where do we start and what do we do? Right? If we're going to go the next 10 years and be a church and we want to love him more than we presently do, where do we start and what do we do? And here's what I want you to hear today. Oddly enough, the way to grow our little love for God is actually not to look at our love at all. Counterintuitive as it may be, oddly enough, to, the way to grow our little love for God is to start by looking at God's great love for us. To look at his lots of love for us until our little love is warmed and grown. That's what John wants us to do. In fact, in John, 1 John chapter 4, he's essentially going to say, you can't even start a conversation about love without having it start with God. And John says that's because love comes from God because God is love. Listen to how he says it in verse 7 and 8. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, when you talk about loving God or anything to do with love and a relationship of love, you can't talk about that without talking about God because love comes from God and God is love. To talk about love without talking about God is like if I started talking all day and presenting to you about Apple and, and MacBooks and iPhones and spent a whole day without ever mentioning Steve Jobs. At some point, if I said to you, what does Steve Jobs have to do with anything with Apple? You'd say, of course you're missing. He's the visionary behind the whole thing, the originator and creator of the whole thing. So it is for John that you can't speak of love without speaking of God, for God is love, and love comes from God. God, by his very nature, hear this, Sabmaru, the God you and I gather around, the God you and I are daily fighting to believe and worship and follow, that God, by his very nature, is love. Who he is and his nature. Your God is a God who is love. It is not hard for God to love because God is love. Or as one commentator put it, light comes from the sun because the sun is light. Heat comes from fire because fire is heat. So love comes from God because God is love. Do you expect to see light from the sun or heat from fire? Then your soul can expect love from God for God is love. And therefore, since God is love, all that God does is loving. Would you hear that? Because wherever you are in your life, you might wonder about this God and what he's like and the things he's allowing into your life. You might question his love even for you. But if God is love, then all that God does is loving. Meaning God loves is not just another list of the actions of God, like God creates, God rules, God reigns, God disciplines, God judges, God loves. You just pile that onto the list of stuff God does. But since God is loving, then all that God does is loving. All his activity is loving activity. So when he creates, he creates in love. When he rules and reigns, he does so by love. When he disciplines, he does so in love. When he judges, he does so in love. All that God does is loving because God is love. Hear that? You know the valley you're in right now? It's not because of the absence of God's love. That valley is precisely God loving you. You might not know it, you might not feel it. But since he is love, he cannot do anything towards you, his children, that is not loving. Everything and every moment is from a God who loves because God is love. And in fact, John's argument and the overwhelming burden of this passage is, the logic is because God is love, that's why we who are born of God should love one another. That's the argument he's making. It's because God is that way and because we belong to God and are born of God that we should love one another. That's his logic. Look again at verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
You hear log the logic that John has, the argument he's making? He's saying, look, if we're born of God and God is love, then of course that means that we should be people of love. Any parent will be able to tell you this. When we had our firstborn, when we had Hannah, when her face started to take shape, everybody that saw her immediately said, she's exactly like me. She looks exactly like me. My genes overwhelm and dominate. I, I remember one night actually telling Shainu, Shainu, look, I think her fourth toe looks just like yours because everything else about Hannah looked just like me. Now, why? It would be natural to imagine my being is literally imprinted into who she is. It's coded into her very DNA. My nature is in her. So, of course, she's going to resemble that which she is born from. And John's argument here is, beloved, 1 John 3, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. And then he goes on to say, God has put his seed inside us. It's actually a very graphic original language Greek word. God's put his seed inside us so that he has literally written himself into our spiritual DNA. So then, if he is love, and he has put his nature in us, what do you imagine we will be except those who love? If there's a fire in a room, will it still be cold and dark? And if a room is still cold and dark, then it means there's no fire in the room. Can God who is love move into my heart and it remain full of hate? And if it does, then it evidences that God has not moved into my heart. John's argument is, Brothers and sisters, since God is love, and we are those who have been born of God, how can we not love? It's easy for John to say, we ought to love each other if we've been born of God. Listen to how one preacher named John Piper puts it. He says it this way. When John says we ought to love each other, he means ought the way fish ought to swim in water. And birds ought to fly in the air, and living creatures ought to breathe, and peaches ought to be sweet, and lemons ought to be sour, and hyenas ought to laugh, and born-again people ought to love. It's who we are. We are realizing who we are when we love. God's seed is in us. God's spirit is in us. God's nature is in us. God's love is being perfected in us. How can we not be people of love when God is love, and his love has come into us? See, John's logic with love is to say, if you're going to talk about love, God, love for God or love for each other, you've got to start this conversation with God because God is love. And then John also wants to make sure that you and I are on the same page about what kind of love we're talking about. You see, John is not talking about just mere human love, the kind that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you love me, I'll love you. John's category of God's love, divine love, is of something completely other. John is not speaking of God loving us as some kind of fleeting feeling where he falls in love with us and he drops out of love with us and he grows hot and he grows cold based on how you're performing. God's love is of a different category altogether. If you fell in love with someone, you fell in love because you looked at this person and you found them to be lovely. And there was something about them that was lovely to you. And then as they loved you, you began to love them more. That's human love. God's love is completely other and different. In verse 19, John says it this way. We love because he first loved us. 
We love God because he first loved us, meaning God wasn't responding to anything about us when he chose to love us. He didn't see us and find us lovely. He didn't find us and find us loving him. God loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. In fact, when did God start loving us? The witness of the scriptures is, from eternity past, God elected his people and chose to love them. Meaning, before there was anything, God set his affection on you. If you know Jesus, if you belong to him, if you're a Christian brother or sister, can I remind you something your soul already knows? God has loved you from everlasting past, will love you to everlasting future. There has never been a millisecond of a moment where God has not loved you. Not just in the present. God has never in time or space not been in love with you. Never been a moment from all of eternity past to all of eternity future where God doesn't love you. In fact, let me read you a quote from Spurgeon. My plan for this sermon actually was just to read a whole Edwards or Spurgeon sermon because they could say it much better than I could. Could you hear one sentence from Spurgeon on this? He says this, Come soul, see if this does not make you love God. He loved you before you had a being. When as yet the sun and moon and stars slept in the mind of God like unborn forests in an acorn cup, when the old sea was not yet born, when this infant world lay in swaddling bands of mist, then had God inscribed your name upon the heart and upon the hands of Christ permanently to remain forever. And does this not make you love God? I remember someone saying, don't you wish you could write one sentence like Spurgeon ever in your life? Who speaks of unborn forests in an acorn cup? But you hear what he's saying? Listen, when sun and moon and stars and sky were just in the mind of God, when whole forests lay with unborn potential, when the old sea was just an infant, and when the entire world was in a swaddling cloth like a baby, even back then, God had written your name upon the heart and hands of Christ Jesus. Do you know what the truth of the gospel is, the good news, how big the love of God is? From eternity past, God knew you and loved you, set his affection on you and chose you to be his. Before time began, you were predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the testimony of the scripture says. So, you were loved by God before you had a you. Before there was a being called you, before there was anything, God loved you. And God set in plan from eternity past a series of events by which he would make you his own. And so at just the right time, he caused Jesus, his son, to come to this earth, to live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death for your sins to have you. And then when you were actually born in time and space, God orchestrated all the events of your life to bring you to the very place and people you needed to be so that you would meet him. He orchestrated everything about your conversion. And at that moment, he who had loved you from eternity past and sent his son orchestrated to send the Holy Spirit onto your dead heart and cause you to awaken to your sinfulness and suddenly this unfeeling dead heart that had no love for God suddenly began to beat. And what was a flat line started to have a pulse. And you came alive because of the love of God that was there from eternity past. And the Spirit brought in through the work of the Son. And now you came alive. 
And this God who has loved you from back then now has given his Holy Spirit to you so that now day by day, patiently, he is at work in your life, conforming you to become more like him. And this God will walk with you every day of your life and meet you in the hour of your death. And then one second after you die, he will meet you on the other side of death. And you will open your eyes to see him. And then that God will be with you until Jesus returns. And the resurrection of the dead comes. And he'll reunite your body with your soul. And you will spend the rest of forever with him. This God has never for a millisecond not loved you. From all the way from before time began. To all the way after there is no such thing as time. He has and forever will and does love you. And if you consider that, and then you go, okay, so what was so lovely about you? What was so lovely about you that he had to set that emotion and could never imagine a millisecond where he didn't love you? This is where John says, wait, wait, we're not talking about human love. We're not talking about you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We're not talking about he found us lovely and fell head over heels in love with us. John is saying God's love is a category altogether different. He loved us because God is love. There was nothing in you or your nature that made you so attractive to God that he had to draw himself to you. That's not how it works. In fact, this is how John says it. Look again at verse 9 and 10. And this is the love of God. It was made manifest to us that God sent his own son only son, into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When did God love you? Not when you had loved God. You see, the good news of Jesus has never come to someone who loved God. It's always come to an unloving and dead heart. God has never loved anyone who didn't start off not loving him. God has never loved anyone who didn't start off vile and wicked. If you find yourself undeserving of the love of God, if you consider yourself going, I know, but because of the things I've done, because of who I am, I want you to know God has never met a deserving person of his love. There's never been one. Everyone who he's ever loved has been undeserving of it. Everyone who he's ever loved has been vile the moment he met him. Everyone who he's ever loved didn't love him when he first loved them. And so if you find yourself undeserving of this love, join the crew of the rest of humanity. Everybody God loved did not start by loving him. And God demonstrates his love for us in this, that he sent his only one-of-a-kind begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be, the text says, the propitiation of our sins. That big fancy word literally means to bear the punishment and the wrath and the penalty for all of our wrongdoings. For everything we had ever done, God emptied heaven so that he might rescue us. Semar wrote, I want you to hear this again. God has taken the initiative to love us. He acted. He didn't respond to us. He took the initiative. We wronged him, and he took the initiative. If, if when service is done, I bump into you, and you fall down, would you imagine that I would hover over you, waiting for you to get up and apologize to me? That's not how it works. 
I bumped into you. It's my task then to what? Stoop down, pick you up, and say, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I wronged. I initiate reconciliation. We ruined a relationship with God. We broke him and broke our relationship with him. And then we went our own way, and God, the wronged one, initiated a relationship with us. He sought to reconcile us. And this is the love of God. Because of God's own love, he took his own initiative to substitute his own self, to bear his own wrath, to have his own judgment fall on his own head through his own son for our sins. That's the love of God. And when, when did we come to love God? Not because we loved him, but because he loved us. I want to tell you one more thing. Can you even imagine this? Do you know that the love of God for you will never grow? God's love never grows for anyone because God, when he loves, loves someone totally and fully. You and I are in this series asking God, help us love you more. Do you know that God never has to think about loving us more? Because there will never be a day when God will love you more than he does right now. And there will never be a day when God loves you less than he does right now. Meaning there is nothing you can do to earn or make him love you more or nothing you can do to cause him to love you less. God's love is total and full and complete and perfect. Ten billion years from now when you're in glory, free from all sin, he will not love you that day any more than he does right now. Because the love of God does not grow. Because the love of God is not like our love. So here's what I want you to hear. If you're here, God's love for you, and you belong to Jesus, it was not conditioned on your love, and his strength of his love for you wasn't based on your love for him. So here's what I want you to hear. If you have any love for him at all, even the smallest, faintest, weakest pulse, if you have any love for him at all, it's because his love is in you. Love comes from God. And God is love. And if we have any love for God at all, it's because his love is in you. And so I want you to consider it from that perspective. Do not walk away today condemned because you don't love God as you ought. Instead, take this encouragement. If there was a time when you had no love for God, and now you have some love for him, then that is evidence that he loves you, his love is in you. And if you started with none but have some now, it is evidence that you will have more in the future because he will not stop loving you. And if Jesus loved you when you had no love for him, is he going to stop now that you have some for him? The love of God is for you. So if you're here and you belong to Jesus, and if you know in the honest parts of your soul your love for him has grown cold, if the fire has weakened and waned, then I want to bring you back to where your love for Jesus started. Go back to where it all started. Can you imagine, can you picture a, a couple that's having problems and the love has grown dim? You can imagine one of them might take them back to where it all started, hoping that there at ground zero, things might be born again. And so I want to read you one more quote from Spurgeon because again, he says it better than I could. Here's what Spurgeon says. Let me tell you where love was born. Love was born in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus sweat great drops of blood. 
It was nurtured in Pilate's hall where Jesus bared his back to the plowing of the lash and gave his body to be spit upon and scourged. Love was nurtured at the cross amid the groans of a dying God, beneath the droppings of his blood. It was there that love was nurtured. It was there your love was born. And if you wish your love, when it is sick, to be recovered, take it to some of those sweet places. Take it to the cross and bid it to look and see afresh the bleeding lamb. And surely this shall make thy love spring from a dwarf into a giant. And this shall fan it from a spark into a flame. Do you want to love God more? It starts then by knowing of his great love for you. And that's what we want to give ourselves to today. So we said, Zemma Road, what we want to do in this season together is we want to take some wobbly steps of prayer together. Having heard his word, we want to respond in prayer. So in a moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is just huddle together with some of the people right next to you. So take two or three people who are sitting in front of you or sitting behind you. It'll be awkward for all of us for about 30 seconds, but then we'll be okay. And when you do, we want to just pray. And you can pray anything that the Spirit leads you to pray in response to his word today. But I want to give you perhaps three thoughts that you might pray for. One, pray in repentance. You know, Jesus came to a church in Revelation 2, and he said to this church, there's so much about you I love, so many things that are going great. And then he said to this church, this one thing I have against you, you have lost the love that you had at first. And so Jesus says to that church, repent. And so if you feel in your own heart that your love for God has grown cold or weakened or waned, here's a moment before leaving this day for you to make that right with God, for you to turn from the direction you're going. So if you're here and your love isn't what it once was or isn't what you want it to be, confess that to Jesus, that you don't love him as you ought or as you want to. Or maybe you're here and you know that the Spirit is convicting you. You should be a person of love if God's Spirit lives in you. And maybe there's relationships that you know you're not loving in. And so God's Spirit is convincing you if God is love and God lives in your heart, what relationships need to be reconciled and made right? Or maybe you've lived your whole life with no thought for God, but suddenly there is this desire to love him. I want you to know that means that there's not darkness over you, but light. And God's spirit is trying to move you into the kingdom of light. And so maybe even for the first time, you might respond with repentance. I want you to know nobody in this church is an expert to praying. We're just going to try our best to speak honest words, shortened sentences, whatever it may be to God. As you gather, I want to also invite you to ask God for, for his spirit to show you the love of God. So that it wouldn't just be something you hear with your ears or even believe just up here. But that today you might experience the love of God. That you might taste its sweetness, see its brightness, hear its beauty. You might feel the love of God. And so don't go here without begging God, I need to encounter your love. There's parts of my heart that forgot how much Jesus loves me. Let me experience that today. And I want to invite you also to praise the Lord. To whatever degree the Spirit does let you see the love of God. Then give voice to that and thank the Lord for the ways in which he has demonstrated his love for you, even through the giving of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to invite you to do. Okay, so take 10 seconds in awkwardness to move around someone, gather with them. And then as you do, I'm going to lead us for a moment in prayer. And then with the people that are around you, you can pray uh, through these things. Okay? Move if you need to. Gather with somebody behind you or in front of you. And let's take this moment to pray.
Okay, I will open our time of prayer, and then you can keep going from here. Father in heaven, 